0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappy, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just had the great pleasure of talking with TJ Henricks and Linda Barnes, the two co-editors of a volume that was just published in 2013 by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press called Chinese Medicine and Healing in Illustrated History. Now, this is a volume that is extraordinarily readable. It's going to appeal to a wide range of readers, from people who are interested in the history of China, perhaps the history of medicine and the combination thereof, who may not know anything about those topics, to researchers who specialize in work on medicine, healing China, and their historical and contemporary instantiations, and really readers who fall anywhere along that spectrum in between. It's a volume that's composed of 10 topical chapters organized chronologically that each individually take on a particular period of the history of Chinese health, healing, and medicine, and that are each authored by an individual scholar. In addition to these 10 individually authored chapters, there are also a series of vignettes spread throughout the chapters that are shorter pieces that introduce translations of really fascinating primary sources. Examples that expand on the treatments given in the chapters and elaborations of certain really interesting concepts or cases that come up in each of the chapters. And so, if taken collectively, there's a wide range of authors and authorial voices who contribute to what comes out the story, the narrative that comes out of the chapter. And so, it's very polyvocal, while still because of the very careful editorial attention that TJ and Linda brought to the picture and to the project. Retains a very coherent narrative flow and a very readable and consistent narrative thread. So it's a great book to read. It's also a great book to teach with. This is really a game changer for any of us who is interested in or who has any experience with teaching topics in the history of science, technology, and medicine in China, either as a textbook that can be assigned as a standalone unit for a history of Chinese medicine or a history of science and medicine course or as a series of excerptable parts that can be taken out and deployed in different units of courses on world history, history of science and medicine, history of healing, history of China, and any range of other topics you can imagine being relevant to the history of health healing um, in China and its contemporary practices. So it's, it's really an amazing accomplishment. And in the course of our conversation, TJ and Linda and I talked about the genesis of the volume, what brought them to this project some of the really interesting aspects of the craft of editing this volume that they encountered along the way, and also their particular visions for the state of the field and some really fascinating examples from their own research, which you can read some of in the book at hand. So it was just a pleasure to talk with them about the book. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy and to read it, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. We're here today to talk with TJ Henricks and Linda Barnes about their new edited volume, Chinese Medicine and Healing, in an Illustrated History. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, TJ and Linda, and thank you so much for both making the time to talk with me and also for your patience in organizing a three-way call. This is great. No, thank you, Carla. Oh, it's my yeah. pleasure.
1: Very much appreciate it.
0: So it's wonderful that we have both of you here, um, because both of you were responsible for producing what's a really amazing volume, and we'll get to. uh, And I'm not just saying that because I'm maybe a little bit uh, because I'm biased as being someone who's really interested in history of Chinese medicine. But we'll talk about all of the ways that the volume I think is a really major contribution to a lot of different fields over the course of our conversation. Before we start um, doing that, let's start off by talking just a little bit about what brought you both into this project and before that into the field. So could you each talk a little bit about what brought you in the first place into the field of the history of Chinese medicine and
2: healing? And perhaps, TJ, we can start with you. Sure. Um, I'm going to. I just uh, visited um, my uh, family's home in Nebraska last, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, I have to start there because, Um, I really, when I was growing up, I really wanted to get actually as far from Nebraska as I could. And I had the role model of an uncle who is in business in East Asia. And I thought he was very glamorous and wanted to follow in his footsteps. So in college, I began studying East Asian history, but I think if I had gone into business, I might have sunk several ships before I was done. And so it's a good thing that I uh, kind of figured out that I have a more scholarly bent and ended up in Chinese history. So,
0: so TJ, how why did you end up in medical history in particular?
2: I actually um, began with um, the question of... Um, And it came out of um, readings in European medical history of um, how epidemics served as a kind of catalyst in different fields. Um, such as and produced things like sanitation reforms and um, epidemiology and had various impacts in um, medical theory itself. So um, I wanted to look at that. In Chinese history, and my first stop was the Song period because it was a period, um, the first maybe great period of um, enormous commercial and urban expansion, which tend to be good breeding grounds for epidemics. So that was the starting point.
0: So Linda, um, if you could mm-hmm. uh, also jump in here, what brought you to the field of the history of Chinese medicine? Sure.
1: So like TJ, I have to go back a little earlier than graduate school. Um, As a kid, when I was maybe 11, my father was asked to do some teaching in business in uh, the Philippines. And along the way, he and my mother decided that we should, instead of doing the sort of European Grand Tour, stop in countries like India and Nepal and Thailand and... Uh, then, of course, the Philippines. And in the course of doing that, we went to all sorts of temples um, and religious sites that I think later moved me in the direction of studying world religions. Um, As far as the Chinese influence, uh, after I'd finished college, I had a friend, this was, mind you, the 70s, and she had discovered the I Ching. And so you know, being of that generation and that era, I got involved in that. And those things sort of came together uh, when I did go to graduate school through the study of world religions and um, healing traditions. Um, And it was particularly because I was sort of interested in how religion and healing, both uh, branches of that, were interested in addressing human suffering. That I that sort of moved gradually in the direction of medical anthropology, um, looking at how both religious traditions and therapeutic traditions address different dimensions of suffering. Um, with a particular interest in the Chinese expressions of that. Um, having lived in Puerto Rico for a year, I knew that I got hideously homesick um, when I was uprooted from the United States, so I decided I needed to do something that I could do in sort of locally and that became uh, a, a a dissertation project on looking at how Chinese healing traditions had entered my local area around Boston. Um, this was still working as an anthropologist, and the only reason that history even came into it in the beginning was because one of the faculty who looked at some of what I had drafted to date said, well, you know, Americans in the 19th century were very interested in China. He said, maybe you could say a little bit about that in your introduction, and that became eight chapters. Um, (laughs) And following all of that, um, I, I sort of, uh, I'm not known for doing things in half measures, um, but following that, I realized that I didn't know enough about the historical dimensions, and so I started tracking footnotes. Um, this was in the course of trying to pull a book out of the dissertation, and as I followed footnotes and one after another, it took me back to about the Oh, 11th century, at which point I had to train myself to become a historian. And it was in the course of doing that, I think, that TJ and I actually met because we were both working on writing different things and worked together with some other people in a writing group where, you know, I learned more about what she was doing and vice versa. And I remember just being profoundly impressed because she seemed to know more people than it was possible to imagine in the earlier phases of history of Chinese medicine of people who had studied with such figures as Nathan Sivan or Paul Unschuld, But she seemed to me to be, you know, just this extraordinary person who knew all sorts of other figures in this sort of emerging field.
0: So you're actually getting at um, what my or you're starting to get at what one of my next questions was going to be in mentioning this writing group in the space where the both of you met. So as we move to the volume itself, the volume that we're talking about, Chinese medicine and healing, it's a multi authored collection of essays, some longer, some shorter, that together serve as an introduction to and also um, and will, I hope, talk about this over the course of our conversation, potentially a textbook for teaching the History of Chinese Medicine and Healing. It's a really amazing book, and, and we'll talk about the different components of it and, and how you both envision it being used um, a little bit later in the conversation. But let's talk first about the germ of this project. So you've met at this in this writing group. Can you talk a little bit about how you together decided to embark on such an ambitious project together? What was the germ of the decision to do a project
2: like this? And perhaps we can start with TJ and then move to Linda. Actually I went uh it was actually um Linda who first yes. conceived the project so I would like to I think we should start with Linda. Okay so that's
0: fine with me. So Linda how, what was the germ of the project? Can you talk a little bit about these early stages?
1: Yeah um as I was first uh starting to teach about um in a very preliminary way about um, history of Chinese medicine, um, TJ brought my attention to a sort of history of China by Patricia Ibri. And one of the things that I found very compelling about the organization of that particular book was that it was a single-authored book, but she had written the history, but then interspersed throughout the text as a whole were these sort of text boxes with sort of vignette-length discussions of different topics. And, um, and the whole thing was illustrated. And so knowing that TJ was familiar with that um, and that we both liked Ibris work, you know, we had a, a – dis- we began a discussion in which I wondered – with her whether it might be possible to do a history of Chinese medicine using that same sort of organizational approach, but instead of our writing all the vignettes, seeing if there might be a way to tap the state of the field in the history of Chinese medicine and have the book as much as possible represent sort of worldwide scholarship and therefore not privileging exclusively one person's work in a given period, but rather their work enriched and complemented by topics that other people had written about. So,
2: TJ, did, did you want to um, add your own thoughts to that? Um... Well, I think, you know, I I think starting from this um, greater framework, we began hammering out our um, proposal and coming up with lists of names and beginning to contact, make preliminary contacts, getting abstracts from people about um, what they might want to contribute, and um Gradually, we pulled it together. I think one of the uh, the first tasks that happened in conjunction, I, all of these things kind of uh, built together at the same time, was coming up with um, a set of threads that we wanted to try to um, get authors to pull through the entire volume so that there would be some coherence despite the... Um, multi authored nature of the volume let 's actually I would
0: love to hear a little bit more about that because that gets at something um, that i was I was interested in anyway so for uh, i 'll preface this question by just mentioning for listeners and um, especially for listeners who haven 't yet had a chance to see the volume or read the volume what the structure of the the volume is. so the structure of the collection includes ten main chapters that are each um, authored by a different person, or in, in one case, Linda um, has written two chapters, 9 and 10, and they're ordered chronologically. So there are several shorter vignettes, as um, Linda was describing earlier, in each chapter that describe or translate interesting primary sources, um, provide short case studies, or otherwise illustrate examples that are relevant or germane to the chapter at hand. So um, in with that in mind, and with that as our basis for understanding what the structure is, one can imagine that involving so many different authors, especially um, when one of the goals of the volume, as you just mentioned, Linda, is to try to integrate as many different kinds of perspectives, or perhaps not as many different kinds of perspectives as are as extant, but rather to try to, as I heard um, or as I interpreted what you said, to try to translate some of the diversity of approaches in the field into this volume so that it doesn't just represent one person's vision of the history of Chinese health and healing or medicine and healing. Okay, so with that in mind, what I imagine you're left with as editors is a lot of different kinds of ways of approaching the topic. So um, TJ, if you wouldn't mind, could you talk a little bit about some of those threads? What were some of the um, consistent kinds of themes or topics or threads that you asked authors to maintain throughout the book, and and then um, afterwards, um, I'd love to hear um, Linda's thoughts on that as well. When you're done,
2: sure. Um, the I think a prop. I'm going to start this with a kind of um, conundrum or um, tension that. Uh, is a little bit built into the project itself. So we needed to find some co- sort of coherent form and some kind of um, overarching narrative arc and also find a way to make this um, a useful book to people who are just coming into the field or to um, instructors who want to fit it into their syllabi, which might be dynastically structured. But the um, The focus on China and the, um, yeah, the focus on China and the dynastic organization produce a kind of um, emphasis that is inherently state centered, actually. dynasties or states after all, Um, and those dynastic divisions tend to break across uh, important social, economic, and other sorts of transformations. So with our threats we did not want to, we wanted to find a way to um, open it up a little bit so that the um, global interactions that went into the um, making of Chinese healing practices uh, would become more apparent and into the sorts of um, not only global, but uh, local and micro social and cultural and economic practices that um, that produce this very vibrant and dynamic um, history. Yeah. Yeah. So, Linda, is there anything that you'd like to add? Uh, your own
0: reflections
1: on some of these threads in that process? Yeah, one of the things. <clears throat> um, uh, one of the things that I think was that we discussed at great length, and that was very important, was that as different aspects of Chinese medicine, in particular, have become increasingly biomedicalized. Um. You know, people talk about Chinese medicine in somewhat limited terms when one looks really historically uh, at the full range of ways in which different parts of society, different classes, the d- different genders, and so on, among the many, many complex uh, cultural variables, engaged in healing of all kinds, and. We wanted to be really careful not to restrict it to simply, say, herbs, acupuncture, and the kinds of things that might now be taught in um, the schools of Chinese medicine with increasing efforts to look biomedical. Um, That meant we had to take into account uh, shamanistic practices. For example, TJ's work, and she'll say more about this, you know, I'm sure, Involves necessarily the stu- the the discussion of how shamans were conceptualized and politically viewed, and so on. Um, for me, m- looking at the ways in which these practices uh, developed, not only in the Boston region but ultimately throughout the United States, you continue to find divination practices. Uh, temple-based practices, and so on. And so it was very important to us that the different authors not feel bound by a narrow discussion of Chinese therapeutics, but rather that they think as broadly as would have fit under a more historically rich definition, whether or not everybody under that very big tent necessarily subscribed to everybody else's practices. And so that was one of our instructions, you know, at how the the therapeutic threads, the cultural threads, and the religious threads moved through these different periods, either more or less in the foreground. You
2: know, can I just um, see, so... Chinese medicine became popular in the United States in recent history, in part as a counterpoint to um, uh, what was considered to be hegemonic biomedicine. Um, But what is interesting is not that there is something inherent about Chinese medicine that makes it countercultural or counter hegemonic, but that historically um, medicine itself, Chinese medicine was produced um, and reproduced uh, generation after generation by people who wanted to distinguish it from what they deemed to be lower practices and competition. And so even if we are um, ne- we're, were narrowly interested in just what is Chinese medicine, uh, where did it come from, where did those ideas and practices uh, come from, we have to consider this larger context of competition and these other sorts of really political agendas for distinguishing um, the medical from the non-medical, and that line was constantly shifting.
0: This actually gets us, I think, really nicely to something that the both of you discuss in the introduction to the volume. So in the introduction, you both lay out some major conceptual and methodological commitments that you mentioned informed some of your editorial decisions in the volume and perhaps your own decisions in choosing what to incorporate into your own author chapters since these are really important in terms of um, not just kind of pulling out some of these really fascinating threads that have already come up in your discussion of the volume just in the past 20 minutes or 19 minutes, um, but they're also really important in terms of situating this volume, this project, within larger trends in the field and the w- within the way you both think about um, and prioritize some of the important threads in the field, I'd like to actually ask you to elaborate a little bit on some of them, and I think it's really, really interesting for um, understanding this as a contribution. So, um, TJ, you just mentioned the uh, issue of uh, trying to decide what counts as medical, and Linda, you also just uh, invoked the um, something that we might call a kind of an encompassing or an attempt to encompass uh, a very expansive view under the tent of what counts as relevant to medical and healing practices with um, in, in your approach to the volume. So let's actually start there. What counts as medical for your purposes in this volume? And just as important, I think, and just as interesting, are there? did you come to this volume with a clear sense, especially given the fact that you have an interest in being so expansive, a clear sense of what doesn't fit under that umbrella. So what is medical and is there anything that you in the course of the practical editing process or even just conceptually um, agree or feel doesn't fit under that rubric? And perhaps we can start with Linda and then move to TJ. You
1: don't ask small questions, do you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. And, you know, feel free if... No, that's quite all right. No, 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 that's fine. Um, you know, I... Boy, what would not fit under that that, uh, that tent? Um, you know, I come back to this question of suffering. And, you know, within a, a more Buddhist framework, let's say, you know, the, the true... Cure for suffering is coming to an awareness of uh, the teachings of the Buddha and living within the Eight Noble Truths and learning compassion. Um, And most of the, say, religious traditions have ways of talking about how you live as a particular kind of human being so that you are, you know, either mending the world or, you know, working within its natural order and so on and so forth. Um, And aspects of that process of being and becoming human um, have to do with easing one's own suffering and the suffering of others. Uh, I suppose for me, practices related to that attention to suffering, come under the, the really broad tent of healing. That doesn't necessarily mean that people conceptualize them as medical, but I I like to start with that broader tent because I think it then gives you this, as you say, more comprehensive field within which to say, okay, out of all of that, what leads people at different points of time and in different groups to decide that something counts as a particular kind of therapeutics.
0: This actually also speaks to another one of the uh, major points that you both make in this introduction, which is something that we've already touched on very, very briefly, which is this more expansive um, title of Chinese medicine and healing and not simply Chinese medicine, which was also a very deliberate decision, it seems, that relates very much to what you were just, uh, the kinds of things you were just saying.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: So, t j did you um have any thoughts on this? Well, I think um, one thing I think that this kind of project and i'd like to see this um, i think it is extending more generally in um, academia as more and more people work um, interdisciplinarily, but uh, rather than taking pre existing categories so um, in Today, we might say there's the suffering of the body, the mind, and the spirit, and you have the disciplines of biomedicine, psychiatry, and theology, right, to um, to address these sorts of divisions that we make, but to ask, um, to take a more flexible approach and to ask um, what... Have other how have other people divided up the world and and uh, addressed their own suffering and have they divided um, the mind from the body and if they did did they do it in a way that was um, how did they do that and it's never exactly the same as uh, you know it's been informed by. Um, the disciplinary uh, spe- specializations of the 19th and 20th centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it requires this kind of um, intellectual agility with dealing with everything from what is China, which is constantly shifting through time, recognizing um, how other people have uh, delimited uh, ethnicity or polity, um, and then uh, also expertise. Mm
0: -hmm. great um thank you so much And, and so a related question that for me naturally stems from this really really fascinating conversation at least for me um is falls under the rubric of something tj that you just mentioned which is this attempt to kind of be more flexible about the kinds of categories that we're bringing or that you both are bringing in your editorial work to this project and this also speaks to Another conceptual point that you both made in the introduction, which was, um, at least to the, um, to the mind of this reader, um, I read it as uh, a point that you were trying to also avoid uh, holding fast to some of the common, not just categories, but also dichotomies that tend mm. to shape the way we think about the history of science and medicine, sacred and secular, science and religion, and so on and so forth. Given that um, there, the volume is extraordinarily rich, and there's so many different kinds of lived practices and um, textual practices that are treated in the volume under this expansive view of healing and health and medicine. Is there anything um, before we kind of move on that didn't make it into the volume that, if you had you know infinite time, you would have liked to include a, ch- a chapter on? I mean, is there anything that you that didn't that sort of was in your mind as being important or relevant to this, but that didn't quite make it into the volume at, in its current shape?
1: Um, you know, that the first thing that comes to mind is there were a number of people we had invited to be part of the project who, for a variety of reasons, couldn't mm-hmm. uh, participate because of other things going on in their work or lives. And for example, we had wanted um, material on military medicine Mm -hmm. and the person we invited found that he could just couldn't end up doing it. We had wanted uh, one or two other people in medical anthropology to write and they had conflicts. So in my mind, it's uh, I think we asked everybody whose work we thought was, uh, that we really liked and felt was challenging. Linda,
2: Linda we didn't ask Carla. <laughs> no. I didn't no, no, know no, no, Carla. No, no, no. no, but no, no Carla, no, no, no. we hadn't we you hadn't met at that time. <laughs> and this I didn't was not the Carla. subtext.
1: This was not the subtext of the <laughs> novel. No no, 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 no. But of the people of the people we each knew at that time. <laughs> yes, yes, no of course. I think I think we asked everybody and for the most part, what was really exciting was that most people did say yes. A few had to drop out, although remarkably few. And, um, you know, there were a few people we talked about and felt that for this project, it wasn't quite the right connection. But I think what was most exciting to me was that pretty much all the things that we thought about wanting to address were we, in one way or another, were aware of somebody working on it, and I remember our going through this massive list and sort of dividing it up as to who was going to contact whom and then who was going to follow that author throughout the project. Um, but what was wonderful, and one of the reasons the book ended up being so big, was that so many people were willing to, to help with it.
0: And I think one of the great things about that is that um, for a reader and thinking about someone who might want to use this volume not just for their own uh, personal research or reading edification, but also to teach, there's so many different perspectives incorporated in the form of these vignettes um, that you've very helpfully added to each of the chapters. And so that makes the book not only um, similar to the Ebri volume that I think, um, I think I know the volume you're talking about, um, that makes it very rich in terms of examples for students, but it also is a way to really multiply the kinds of authorial perspectives in a volume mm-hmm. like this without making it, you know, 5,000 pages, which you can imagine, you know, it, it easily could have, um, that kind of goal could have produced. And so I think it was
1: really, really successful. So scholarly dim sum.
2: <laughs> can I add just one point course, on this? Course. And so... Um, one of the things that I am very, very happy about with this volume is that um, the Harvard University Press agreed to let us include extensive citations mm-hmm. and bibliography. Um, we tried to get as also as complete a glossary as we could into the index and um, But the – so this – I think this should be readable as a kind of adjunct to a variety of different kinds of courses, but for – I really – I really want students to see the footnotes. I really want mm-hmm. students to be aware that um, the points that are being made draw from, um, you know, the hard work of uh, wonderful scholars. And I want uh, students and junior scholars and scholars from collateral fields who are expanding the reach of their um, You know, their uh, pursuits, I want them to have the resources right there to be able to Mm -hmm. follow up as Linda, you know, described doing earlier to track down the, um, the fuller story right, in um, the rest of the literature. so And, Carla, you are in the footnote in the bibliography. Oh, don't, be so <laughs> don't
0: be silly. Don't be silly. We can from that. And that was you, not, that was not the yeah. point of that question.
1: You know, if I could just add, there's one other group that we haven't talked about yet, and there are a couple of authors who represent this contingent, and that's practitioners. Sure. Um, you know, in our TJ, you know, I, I wholeheartedly concur with TJ, we talked a lot about how this could be a book that would be classroom friendly. It it made it it had a huge influence in how we edited things, how we modified some author's style. We wanted it to be, above all, very, very readable and not one of those things that students just Feel they're slogging through, but the other group that uh, that I, you know, I think we both wanted to reach were practitioners who don't necessarily have extensive research resources that they study about the history of sort of their own medicine. From my perspective, that's especially true of practitioners in the United States, and so you know I I. For that reason, it seemed important to include at least several practitioners as authors and to focus on sort of practice dimensions so that people who are uh, therapeutically involved now can also understand the many roots of their own work.
0: Thank you. Talking about the roots of people's own work, um, let's actually, I think it would be good to spend a little bit of time talking about your own contributions, because the two of you not only edited this amazing volume, um, reconciled all these chapters and vignettes with each other, but you also um, wrote and contributed chapters of your own. So I'd love to hear just a little bit about that. So TJ, you wrote Chapter 4 on the Song and Jin periods, and we've heard a little bit actually from from you at the beginning, and also from Linda's mentioning of your work with shamans and Um, these kinds of issues about your broader interests and the kind of interest you're bringing more broadly to song medicine in this chapter. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit um, more about that. So what particularly, um, in in terms of your own research, what particularly brings you to song medicine? What do you focus on? And what were some of the most important aspects of this very um, rich and very broad field that you wanted to incorporate in this chapter?
2: Well... I'll say that um, despite my um, larger intellectual agenda to try to undermine the dynastic and state centered um, organization of the book with uh, a richer um, and more bottom up. sort of history that my own research um, to date has focused more on state policies and quite narcissistically um, because I've really been thinking about the period in those terms. I started with um, the very dramatic um, institution building programs of the Song State, um, building, um, expanding education, publishing and printing books, and uh, expanding medical relief, building clinics to um, provide relief for the um, indigent poor, to um, uh, distribute medicines, to distribute, um, you know, for epidemics, and using all of these programs to try to get Southerners in the South, uh, Southern China was still um, very much a frontier region, not unlike the um, American West where you had a a mixture of um, people who were recognized as what we might say non-Han or non-Chinese in modern terms. um, And of, you know, a myriad of other groups of people who were doing all sorts of things. And, um, the Song State made a huge effort to um, get those people to use medical rather than what they called shamanic healing. And really, uh, the way they used shaman was a lot like saying witch doctor or something like that. So um, that has been a passion for me, and I, I gave that um, center stage But um, it's also a period of enormous um, commercial growth and urbanization, as I mentioned. And so we have this drugs trade and this circulation of um, medical knowledge and practices that really had um, much less and often nothing to do with um, state programs. Um, There were also... um, all sorts of religious transformations and the appearance of um, new types of religious practices and new types of religious practitioners who also participated in healing. Um, And some of that, that is in there. It was also this amazing um, transition, which is often obscured in the um, kind of, Continuity of language about family. Um, it was a, a huge. There was a huge transformation in the structure of families and in gender relations. And so, women's medicine also underwent enormous transformations. And those last are some areas. I was trying to keep the page count, the word count down, <laughs> but they could have all used. Um, I, I could have started with any one of those um, from any of any one of those directions. So um, those are my, uh, the ways in which my obsessions maybe um, put a big weight on the front end of that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, TJs.
0: Linda, let's talk about your chapters briefly. So you were responsible for writing chapters 9 and 10, which collectively form parts 1 and 2 of what's called a world of Chinese medicine and healing. Mm -hmm. Now, Chapter 9 emphasizes, among other things, something that you've been talking about both in the context of um, our very early part of this conversation in which you talked about how you personally came to the field of medicine and Chinese studies, but also some of the issues that you've talked about since. And this is the importance of translocal and international encounters of Chinese mm-hmm. medicine and the local sites of learning, uh, of the transmission of learning and practice. So what, um, briefly, if you can, what what particularly draws you as a scholar to these sets of issues? And uh, because this is really so much of what Chapter 9 is about.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking as I was listening to TJ that one of the reasons I think that being both a historian and an anthropologist feels um, very synergistic for me is that uh, at least as I understand them, and in my own work, they involve looking at what happens when sort of cultural, therapeutic, and religious pluralism uh, emerge in all sorts of expressions. And what happens when people from one background are trying to understand the people and practices from perhaps a radically different background? um, The material that my own work in the chapters, which I should say was intended to be one chapter, but I had spent so much time editing the other chapters and materials that for which I was responsible that we came down to the deadline, and I said to TJ, I can't cut as much as I have to cut. So it was partly, I don't know whether, lack of discipline or lack of something. That, those were not supposed to be two chapters, and TJ was extremely patient with me, um, but but, uh, you know, the, the looking at the United States, you know, for a number of years, overlapping in part with work on this book, I had spent visiting sites throughout the United States and talking with different people. And the reason for going to each of these places was in recognition that the demographics of each region would have some expression and effect Uh, in connection with how practices were then modified. Um, So Chapter 9 was one way of getting at that. Chapter 10 was a different way. Um, But it really came down to this broad question, what happens when people from different backgrounds uh, interact through their respective practices and try to make sense of each other? Now,
0: Chapter 10 explores some of the many, many different kinds of these practices, modern and contemporary practices, that are encompassed within this very expansive category of Chinese medicine and healing. And there are some wonderful, or there's a, rather a wonderful range of practices mm-hmm. represented, including, um, I'll just mention a few of them briefly for listeners who haven't seen the volume, food therapy, herbal medicine, various sorts of harmonizing practices in, in spaces like temples, homes, clan halls, other kinds of associations. Um, you talk about new organizations for self-cultivation and service, Longevitology, which I just love. That's going to be one of my new words, Longevitology, Um, That's one of my favorite words now. Divination, dream interpretation, face reading, and actually many, many more. It's a wonderfully diverse set of practices that I think collectively give a very, very um, powerful picture of the range and the multiplicity of kinds of Practices and, and ideas and beliefs that make up this very living field that we refer to as Chinese health, healing, and medicine. So these two chapters, nine and ten, um, Linda, are full of some great examples and individual cases. Is there one or perhaps one or two in particular um, that constitute some of your favorite examples um, or individuals from these two chapters?
1: Mm-hmm. Well. Although I haven't met him personally, I have corresponded with Matulu Shakur, who really is, uh, in my mind, one of the elders in the introduction of acupuncture applied to detox work and now to um, relief work around the United States and around the world. And so I, I... you know, his story felt very important to me to tell because he's gotten relatively little public credit for this work. So he's he's been one of my favorites. Um, and another, just because it's so strange to me, is, you know, the, the application of feng shui in McDonald's in Southern California. You know, I'm, I'm sort of drawn by these ostensibly improbable examples that when you look more closely have their own logic, and they sort of make sense. Um, and so what I find really fascinating is in what way do they make sense?
0: Linda, it's actually, I think, worth, um, just a, a super briefly, but for listeners who, there, there may be a lot of listeners who actually have never heard of Matulu Shakur, and it's such a fascinating story that, do you want to just very briefly explain who he is?
1: Yeah, he was an activist in Harlem, um Particularly motivated to uh, try to address the problem of drug addiction uh, in Harlem and Spanish Harlem, and the imposition of methadone clinics um, and in the course of that kind, and he was also very involved in black liberation movements uh, of the 70s and so he heard about the use of acupuncture in relation to... Uh, drug detox work and a number. Uh, he, he and a number of other activists tracked down someone in Canada and went up periodically to Quebec to study with this person. And um, uh, Dr. Shakur is the the stepfather of Tupac Shakur, and you know some of his political activism. Uh, put him on the watch lists of the FBI. And um, the long and the short was he was charged with uh, crimes relating to the theft of a Brinks truck. And in the course of that process, although he was not present uh One of the guards was killed and he was charged with being part of the larger plan. And so he's been in prison uh, for several decades, Um, but is, you know, very, remains very interested in the field and also, you know, in other ways of sort of social healing.
0: Thank you so much. And it's, um, I'll just, I would just want to highlight that for listeners because it's one of many, many really interesting cases um, in this book that I think really push the field forward in terms of research, and, as well as offering a synthetic tool for learning and teaching. So as we come um, to this last uh, part of our conversation, as, as our time winds down a little, let's actually step back out again and uh, talk a little bit about the volume as a whole, now that you both have very helpfully um, given some insight into your own authored contributions. So what are some of the contributions, that, the most important contributions, that you feel this volume makes as a field? And how do you envision your ideal user of this volume? Sort of what's your ideal vision uh, for how users, readers, teachers, students are going to use the volume? And perhaps um, we can start with TJ
2: well i um, I talked about uh, students and scholars, and um, i I hate to uh, single out a single type of ideal user because I hope that mm-hmm. um, it's it's readable enough or at least much of it is readable enough <laughs> that someone who's just interested in the subject could pick it up and find um, stories like Mutulu Shakur's that are absolutely um, riveting. Um, but the way I, I, you know, I'm coming out to it as an academic and as someone who, uh, teaches courses on Chinese history and Chinese, um, medical history, and also on, on the history of martial arts. And I think one of the, um, ongoing issues that arises in these studies is, um, The common idea that uh, Chinese culture and civilization and Chinese medicine and martial arts in particular are um, 5,000 years old and that there's this kind of um, stubborn idea that nothing has changed for 5,000 years. So they're both really exotic and cool because they're 5,000 years old, but they're also um, dead. I just have to say dead because they haven't been changing. And um, actually the story is much more interesting and exciting. And I hope, even just the, for practitioners, I hope even just the very um, fact of change makes it um, liberating to practitioners as they do things like Linda talked about of using feng shui, which used to be um, primarily a used in burials of using feng shui for you know, organizing um, their McDonald's um, and for using Chinese medicine for um, drug treatments. Great. Linda, do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Well, just to second what TJ said, I think we we tried to keep multiple hypothetical readers in mind as we planned the book and as we edited it and so on to, to... Really emphasizing readability, comprehensiveness, um, sort of a refusal to be academically dry um, and therefore, you know, being willing to put in stories that were much more, this goes to TJ's earlier point about ground up, you know, uh, really growing out of popular practice. You know, which now can involve things like, so what's out on the Internet? What is, you know, sort of popular discourse and try. That's another thread I think that we tried to have go throughout. But it really was to reach a broad spectrum of potential readers.
0: For one of the last questions that I want to ask you, um, what I one of the things that work on this volume and that the volume as an object does is to provide a kind of state of the field. And so what I'd love to know as we move forward is given the position that you both are in now at the other side of this process, having edited the volume, having spent what I imagine were many years working through this material, the both of you probably have a better position than most, even than most uh, specialists in the field, of the range of kind of work that's being done and of perhaps what we can look forward to in the future. So from that position, thinking about this volume as also a kind of snapshot of the state of the field, what are some of the, or perhaps one or one or two of the most exciting research directions that you both um, feel we can look forward to reading about in the future in terms of the, the state of the field? of Chinese health and healing. And perhaps we can start with um, Linda and
1: then move to TJ. Well, I'm not sure it's even, it's being written about some. Um, so I think it's something we're going to see more of down the road. <clears throat> but, um, you know, we talked earlier about the biomedicalizing direction that uh, has been happening not only in, say, mainland China and other parts of the Chinese world, but certainly in the United States. Mm -hmm. However, I think there is a counter trend that flies somewhat lower, you know, below the radar in sort of bureaucratic circles, at least, which, you know, involves the ways in which people are really resisting that. They're questioning this sort of narrowing of the field. They are looking back to older texts. It's tricky when we talk about older teachers because even the older teachers have been very influenced by developments in the 20th century. But the incorporation of some of the kinds of practices we've talked about, there's this sort of... um, ornery insistence on going back to older practices and pushing back against this narrowing trend. Um, And so I think that's a very interesting facet of, you know, TJ's, Point earlier about, you know, the medicine is constantly changing.
0: Great. Thank you, Linda. TJ, what for you are um, maybe one or two of the most exciting future directions of the field from your perspective as someone who's just written and edited what's um, potentially a, or I think something that functions as a state of the field? <sighs>
2: Well, I um, so one of the most exciting things I think is um, the work of scholars such as I don't know if you've heard of her. There's this um, scholar named Carla Nappy who. <laughs> oh are, please, that's
1: not. <laughs> that's
2: not allowed. No, no, no. no. Sure present, it is. Present company excluded. No, but I'm not kidding because it, one of the exciting things is that there are more and more scholars who are taking on the not inconsiderable um, challenge of learning not only classical Chinese, literary Chinese, but also learning Manchu, uh, working across, um, you know, early, earlier forms of Korean or Japanese and Chinese Vietnamese to, um, to do the groundwork that we really need to do to um, be able to flesh out the connections of um, this Place we call China with the larger world and Arabic, right? So um, the which is one of the most impressive things, Carla, is that you're going way out of East Asia with this. Um, the the other thing is that I think um, there is uh, a lot of work coming out in um, from archaeology. This has been going on for some decades now, but. Um, Lately, scholars have been focusing renewed attention on the uh, manuscripts found at Dunhuang in Central Asia on the the medicine within those, and we were fortunate to um, represent some of that scholarship in the um, in chapter three of the volume. And yeah, and finally, I'd say um, I really am excited by the increasing. Um, opportunities that there have been for international collaborations. Mm-hmm. So um we were in and People's uh, the study of this field has really exploded in the People's Republic of China and um we're getting some really um exciting uh new scholarship from them. So um so, and communication across these fields. So, you know, not just in one country, people tended to really do textual studies. And in another country, you know, the analysis school was really hot and people were doing social history. But now um, those borders are opening up, just as I hope the um, borders of how people imagine Chinese medicine and healing might also
1: open up. If I could just throw in one other sure. remark on that. And, um you know, as you know from your own work, Carla, the the issues of exchange and the ways in which different groups name and frame things, um, really kind of requires a multidisciplinary approach. And you know, because no one discipline quite gets at everything. And I think, you know, at the risk of embarrassing you further, I think your own work really does exemplify that. Um, but I think it also illustrates ways in which historical study it intersects with these other kinds of inquiry and needs to do so. Aw, oh,
0: you guys. <laughs> no, 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 thank you both. And I think this is um, this has been a real learning experience for me too, reading the book. and there's so, And I'll just say even as somebody who works in the field, I learned a tremendous amount from reading the material in this book. So I commend it to Not just people who feel like they don't know a whole lot about Chinese medicine, healing practices and histories, but also people who do consider themselves specialists in the field, because there's a lot to learn in this book for all of us. So uh, now that we've uh, come to the end of our conversation, and we've only just very barely scratch the surface of the really rich contents of the book. Is there anything else in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about in this hour, but that either or both of you would like to mention, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to pick up a copy of the book and work with it and read through it? And maybe we can start with Linda and then move to TJ.
1: You know, I at the moment nothing comes to mind, but thank you for asking.
0: <laughs> no problem, and that's and that's a fair answer too. That's that's an option. TJ, what is there anything that you'd like to put on the table?
2: Um, I want to. There's one thing that I would like um, people who purchase the book to do, and that is to give careful study to the cover art mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. to think about on the on the back cover. There is a um, and I think early 12th century painting on which the object on the front cover was based. And I would just like readers to take some time to think about um, how the sensibilities and um, the types of uh, thinking about medicine that are embedded in the two objects. I do that with my classes, and I think it's a it's a really enlightening and fun exercise.
1: And Carla, actually, I did think of one thing that, that does grow out of that. And just to say that, that there is a reason that we were so insistent on as- – as many illustrations as the press would allow us. And that's because, you know, I think it's impossible to imagine something from text alone. And our, our culture tends to be very in certain ways, especially in academia, very word-oriented. So I I think, you know, my hope would be that readers would take the illustrations as seriously as they take the the text. Uh, My only regret is that for reasons of cost, you know, the press couldn't do the book in color, but I remain very grateful that they allowed us as many pictures as they did, including including the really wonderful maps that T.J. with. Some of her students generated specifically for this book.
0: So I've taken up a ton of your time for the the two of Mm -hmm. you, and thank you so much. I promise you this is going to be the last question I will ask. In addition to being authors of these great chapters and editors of this amazing volume, you're both very active and very eminent scholars and researchers in your own right and are working on other things as well. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, it's an amazing book, and I'm sure it's going to be widely read and assigned, and I certainly will be responsible for at least some of that. Um, the assigning and the making people read it. Um, and I think it's, it's an amazing resource for students and also for colleagues. What's next for you? What is currently inspiring you? What projects are you working on now that this book is out? And perhaps we can start with Linda and then move to TJ.
1: Uh, before doing this collection with TJ, I had Written a book on the history of interactions between China and the West and Western perceptions of Chinese practices through the middle of the 19th century. Um, for some years now, I've been gathering source materials and then collecting oral histories, which I'm now trying to sort through and organize and get transcribed. I say get transcribed because I have altogether some 350 oral histories.
0: TJ and Linda, in addition to editing this volume and to contributing really wonderful chapters and some inserts and vignettes as well, you're both very accomplished and very eminent research scholars in your own right. So now that this volume is out, and congratulations on the volume, it's an amazing volume, and I'm sure we'll get a very wide readership. What's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you in terms of your own research and work now that this project is done? And perhaps we can start with Linda and then move to TJ.
1: Um, prior to working on this collection with TJ, I had put together a book on the history of Chinese medicine in the West and healing practices that went up to the middle of the 19th century. And the reason for that was that I knew I then wanted to do a follow-up project looking at the dissemination and adaptation of these practices in the United States from 1849 to the present. So at this point I am wading through a lot of oral histories from around the country that many of which still need to be transcribed and a lot of other sort of historical materials to try to continue the story and and out of that material you know came some of the content for the the chapters in the volume. Great.
2: TJ, what are you working on now? Well, the um, this anthology actually caused the um, uh, my main research project, which I talked about in relation to writing my chapter on um, state policies towards reforming southern healing customs in the Song period, um, that got continually put on the side as I um, struggle to make deadlines um, for this volume. And I'm finishing revisions on that this summer, and hope that it comes out before too long. Um, I'm also collaborating with a a scholar at Syracuse University named Ji-hee Hong, working on, and here's another um, archaeological find, on a uh, mural with Um, medical content that was um, only excavated in 2009 and um, a small portion of that mural actually appears in my chapter if anyone wants to uh, get a preview of that but um, we're hoping to um, finish our collaborative article um, this fall and finally I've spent so much time on uh, top-down history, which has been really exciting, that I want to start, um, I want to move as far toward the margins as I can. So I'm actually um, uh, beginning to work on um, the kinds of exchanges of knowledge and also the um, practices of kind of masculine performance and distinction that were um, going on in the um, commercial and other marginal spaces in the Song period. Well,
0: best of luck with this project to both of you. They all sound fabulous, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you again about your next books. And so good luck with that. Thank you again so much for making the time to talk with me, and, and best of luck. Thank you so much, Carla.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you, Carla. Great pleasure.
0: You've been listening to New Books and East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.